This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send handpicked books to your door. The club offers free shipping to Canada, the UK, and contiguous US. Use code MAGICHOUR at checkout for a 10% discount on your membership. Whether you're a professional artist with a stocked library or a novice who's just beginning to build their collection, Charcoal Book Club is an easy and affordable way to stay up to date on the most essential work in contemporary photography. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com and use the code MAGICHOUR to save. She sat there staring at it for about five minutes in total silence. Then she said, who shot this? I said, a person of substance. I'm Jordan Weitzman and this is Magic Hour. So far, I've had the pleasure of sitting down with so many incredible photographers to hear about their work and practices. But today, we have something a little different for you. In this episode, we go behind the scenes and talk to a seriously inspiring woman whose work in photography we get to appreciate week after week. Siobhan Boniker is a senior photo editor for The New Yorker, and in this conversation, we get into what her work is all about. That little passage at the top of the show was from a wonderful letter from a reader to New Yorker staff photographer Parry Dukovic that Siobhan so beautifully read. You'll hear more of it closer to the end, but first, let's hear about how she got into it all. You know, my father got a scholarship to UVA in the 70s and my fa- my mother and father moved to Virginia so he could pursue this scholarship uh, studying literature and he of course had come back from America was all of this Americana and from Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, Hemingway, Faulkner that was all present in our home life uh, our very European home life um, and he also made lots of photographs during that trip. And I, yesterday I found this photograph of my mother around the age that I am now, standing under the Statue of Liberty. They took this road trip around the States. And when I was younger, he would project those slides, you know, as a sort of way to reminisce. And I think seeing all of that somehow stuck with me deep you, down. You developed a kind of romantic <laughs> idea of the, of the States. Possibly it was always destined to happen. I don't know. Maybe it was fate. But um, I came to New York about nine years ago. How did you get into photography? I'd actually come to America previously. I I was a student at Central St. Martin's School of Art where I was making sculpture and site-specific installations and very conceptual stuff. Mm -hmm. But I I took a a three-month break to come to New York to... I was uh, interning at Magnum in the cultural department. And after that, three, four months, whatever it was, I remember returning to London thinking, Christ, New York really kicked my ass. You know, <laughs> definitely. I think I was kind of relieved to get back. But, but then many years later, I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this another go. And this time it's going to work. And sure enough, it did. So, mm-hmm. so when I moved back to New York um, in 2000, early 2009, I was here for about six months on a tourist visa, during which time I was doing a variety of different things in the photo world. It wasn't so much that I had decided I want to work in stills photography. It was more that I was interested and I've always been a very, I'm very curious by nature. 
And I think storytelling is probably a bigger draw for me than the medium in some respects. I actually was up at Yale recently giving a class lecture to the MFA students and I think, I mean, I don't know if it was just because I was talked out after two hours, but <laughs> I proffered the fact that I, I don't wake up and live and breathe photography, I think, to a little bit of a dismayed reaction <laughs> in the room. But for me, it's about the expression of life and the expression of ideas. And I think stills photography is a very potent way of doing that. So I, I'm, I've always, I've been drawn, I'm drawn to that part, part of the of the art form and I was doing when I first moved to New York I was working in a variety of different sort of facets of the photo world if you like um, and I was working with a few different photographers and was sponsored then by a photographer for whom I became I became his lead producer for a few years portrait photographer called Platon and during that time had the great fortune of working with wonderful magazines one of the first projects I worked on was a civil rights portfolio for The New Yorker, which was 18 photo shoots across the U.S., mm. photographing leaders of the civil rights movement. Um, the Little Rock Nine, five of Malcolm X's daughters, wow. the Olympians. Um, and that was a project for The New Yorker, so I was working very closely with Elizabeth Biondi, the photo director at the time, and also Whitney Johnson, who was then a senior photo editor. So it was, it was everything... That was coming out of the studio was an, was a very collaborative effort um, with the Human Rights Watch, for example. I travelled to the Thai border, Burma, with the Human Rights Watch and a small team of researchers and, a, and the crew and Platon and we photographed victims of the Burmese militia. This is before Aung San Suu Kyi was elected, and so you know the projects ranged completely. Like you know, we'd be at Smashbox in LA photographing Justin Timberlake and then we'd be in Texas photographing George W. Bush and then we'd be in you know we'd be in Nigeria with victims of malaria and then we'd fly back and do oh something God. entirely different again so wow. every I, I was living out of a suitcase I mean I was just we were just traveling so much and you were you were always on the road yeah we were always on the road it was exhausting it was <laughs> exciting um you know, I, I think that is one of the most incredible things about photography is that it brings you to places and it brings you to people. And I've been on set on hundreds of photo shoots and the opportunity to meet those people is, it's an incredible one. And you learn so much from hearing them speak, you know, in front of the camera when they're relaxing, when, you know, for example, Malcolm X's daughters, some of them hadn't spoken to each other in years. And there we were in a studio in New York and one by one they arrived. And at first it was a little frosty. And then, you know, an hour into hair and makeup, you know, they were braiding each other's hair and helping <laughs> each other with the, I mean, it, you know, it's always amazing to see how human beings interact with each other and yeah, the stories they want to tell. Um, you know, Al Pacino with his espresso with a lemon twist and his strange stories that he was telling. He takes an espresso with a lemon twist? Yeah. I really? Is that an Italian thing? No, I've never heard of that. <laughs> that was at, um, the, what's that Italian restaurant in Midtown? I think it's called Sardi's. Yeah. The fancy, yeah, the, uh, yeah. the classic, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, that was actually, it was amazing because a family had came in with their kids and they, you know, for like a spaghetti and meatballs dinner and they were obviously t tourists. 
and then Al Pacino walks past while well, it just made their day, you know, it's yeah. <laughs> total <laughs> New York Italian conflated in one. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, I guess it must be interesting to obviously meet and and, and get to know the subjects being photographed, but also see the interact how see how the photographers that you're working with deal with those people and interact with them and uh, and how and how different photographers work. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of my jobs as a photo editor, I, when I left that studio, I went to work at the New York Times magazine. And after my time there, I came to work on staff at the New Yorker. And one of the things a photo editor has to do on a daily basis, obviously, when you're assigning work, is not just consider the aesthetics of what the photographer can deliver, but it's also a question of personality. And who's right for what? You know, I often, I, I receive a lot of digital portfolios from photographers. They send me their work. But often, I, I mean, I try to set up actual meetings with photographers because what I need to do is gauge what they're like, get a sense of their personality. I need to feel confident that I'm sending the photographer to an assignment for which they're the right fit in terms of how, how they can cope with the setup you know I'm not going to send an emerging photographer from from an art school to a celebrity shoot straight off the bat you know I don't because it it depends you know what I've certainly seen in in my time having been on so many shoots a few hundred by now is that you know a celebrity for example will just dominate the room and it's they have a very strong personality or they have handlers and whatnot um, and they'll just control the shoot and you have to subvert that and a, and a photographer with confidence and a, a sense of their own self will be able to do that so that for example takes thought in terms of like who what sort of personality is is, is the right approach for a shoot like that uh, similarly you want you know if you're working with somebody who's never been photographed before which is the case at the New Yorker really for the most part maybe you're photographing a victim of sexual assault or maybe you're photographing a refugee who doesn't speak English and you have to be careful about who you send to that shoot too. I actually think that component of my job has become more critical than ever. How in, come? In, in the past year since Trump was elected, I think when you have a president who's trying to subjugate expression and, you know, when, when DACA is being rolled back or funding to the NEA was being, you know, withdrawn, you, you know, you have a responsibility to make visible the work that is exploring our human experience, that work by young emerging artists, artists at risk, and and even just thinking more generally uh, in terms of subject matter, thinking about the subject matter of a story and who you assign to that has to be, has to be something that is is done with with care i think and that has always been the case but i i personally just feel that that is more critical now in the age and time that we're in yeah yeah, yeah. there's a, a fantastic interview that your editor-in-chief david remnick did with uh, with long form a little while back and he was asked what he thinks the like first of all how how do you do it you know how do you do how do you run a magazine and do the podcast and also write and how do you do it all like what's the secret and I'm not exactly sure, I'm going to probably paraphrase a little bit, but he said that the secret to his job is finding the best people and letting them do their thing, in essence. Do you, do you think, do you feel the same way about the photographers you work with? 
Yes, yeah. the sentiment is absolutely the same. You know, you when you are hiring a photographer, you know, I always tell them. Um, often, for example, if I meet if I meet with a photographer and I'm looking at their work, they will show me the various commissions that they've shot for other magazines or maybe an advertising job, on the rare occasion, and I usually say, "Well, can you show me your personal work? I'd like to see that. You know, I want to see it how you think," hmm. and then I'll, maybe I'll find a story for them a few weeks down the line. And invariably, you know, I'm, I'm asking for, for them to shoot this story in such a way that it feels copacetic with their own personal approach to photography, their own practice. Often I'll say, I want you to do this, but I want, you, but I want it in the vein of your personal work, you know? Mm, interesting. So it's a, you're, you're trusting this, you're placing a story into a photographer's hands you know and you have to, to instill some confidence in them too depending on who it is if it's a new photographer definitely if it's someone who's um been shooting for decades then they they know what to do so it actually varies quite greatly in terms of the amount of art direction that is given or how much su- not support but how much the photo editor is in conversation with the photographer about how the image will be made Mm-hmm. It depends very much on who you're working with. I mean, I work with hundreds of photographers and every year, I, I mean, I must assign uh, over 50 portraits a year, for example. So, you know, it, it, it changes a lot. If I send Kathy Opie to make a portrait of the painter Mark Bradford, well, you know, Kathy Opie knows what she's doing. I don't need to, yeah. I don't need to really talk to her about how she's going to make the picture. Um, somebody who's more emerging might want to have more of a conversation about it. But also, you want to allow enough room for the photographer to bring themselves into it, absolutely. That's the whole point, you know. As a magazine, you're trying to individuate yourself, and actually the best way to do that is, as David Remnick said, um, to work with the best people and let them do their thing. Mm -hmm. You know, trust them. That's why you've hired them. I've hired you because of what you do. I want to assign you because of what you do. You're great at what you do, you know. So when you do assign a portrait commission do you have the picture in your head like do you have a tailored solution or you're looking for the photographer's solution are you looking to be surprised in a way surprise is (laughs) (laughs) surprised yes shocked maybe not so much (laughs) um do i have an idea of the portrait in my head you know i'll tell you something portrait shoots are very very difficult and it's about chemistry and it's about the subject. It's you, you have absolutely no idea what you're going to get. You really can't plan it, you know. Um, I'll give you some examples. So a few years ago, I received a manuscript. You know, I'm always reading manuscripts months in advance of a story being published because, of course, you know, working with the writers as their manuscripts are being developed, speaking to them about the text and taking you know the photographs take their cues from the text and so I'm determining how to visually represent the story and in the case of profiles it's a little bit more straightforward for you know for the most part you know well we want to make a portrait of this person Calvin Tompkins was writing a piece about the painter Chris Affili and in the third paragraph I think he mentions having visited Chris in his home in either London or Trinidad and mentions that there's a Malik City Bay print up on the wall of Chris's home, and Chris spoke about how this this City Bay print and actually City Bay's work had influenced his paintings. 
And of course, this light bulb just went off in my head and just thought, well, it's, this would be dreamy if, you know, we could make a picture of Chris by Malik Sidibe, which is, you know, a bit of a dream dream quest in many respects. I mean, Malik is was at the time, is, unfortunately he passed away this past year, but was very old and fra- frail, um, living in West Africa and Chris was in Trinidad. <laughs> so Malik wasn't going to fly to Trinidad. So we had to get Chris to West Africa, <laughs> which we which we never do. We never fly subjects places, but this just sort of had to happen. And I think in that in that case, and that worked out beautifully, that was, that was a really perfect uh, conflation, I think, of text and image because, the you know, the, a reader picks up the magazine and the hope is that they, they too are surprised when they see that. Here's a portrait of Chris of Philippe in Malik City Bay as they're reading the text and it, the whole thing feels so copacetic, you know. That's an example of when, you know, we, we had an idea of what the portrait would look like. But because I'm assigning so many portraits, I have to say that it is a huge challenge to reinvent the wheel week in, week out as to how to make a new portrait of somebody. And you get a sense of the types of people that are used to having their portrait made and how that will influence how smoothly the shoot will go. We have we profile a lot of writers and scientists and people like that. I mean, for Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a physicist, um, up at the Hayden Planetarium. That's a that's an interesting example because here you have a man who looks really straightforward. You know, he wears a suit. Maybe it's a maybe he wears a bow tie. That's about as quirky as it gets. But how do you tell? How do you how do you inform the reader that this is a physicist? That this is an astro- He's an astronomer. You know. I'll tell you. I remember. Well, the the portrait was memorable because it was a Perry Dukovic portrait, that's right? right? And there's the there's a kind of celestial. Yes, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. And actually, so when the story first came up on the schedule, I got so excited because I thought, well, this is my chance to make that dream sequence from Woody Allen's film, Manhattan. I don't know if you remember it, but there's, um, there's a scene when Diane Keaton and Woody Allen take a walk through the planetarium and they're, they're backlit, they're silhouetted by the moon and I think the rings of Saturn. It's one of the most beautiful scenes of any film, I think. But... And I, I was just, I thought this is, this is my time that we can make this image. You know, we can put him in this setting. It'll be perfect because you'll get a sense of what it is that he actually does, you know, which is what you want to do. I mean, when, a, when the reader picks up the magazine and looks through, you can't have every portrait can't just be this straight shot, you know. But as I was riffing this idea and researching it, I, that planetarium is actually closed down. I think that was the Rose Planetarium. And... We had a little bit of a brainstorming session and Pari came up with this idea of projecting these, I don't know what it is. I don't know if he maybe made holes in a piece of card and lit through the card or something, but, or he projected something onto Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know, but in any case, it, the portrait looks as if he's kind of surround, he, like you said, this sort of celestial mm-hmm. waterfall happening, Yeah, which is, I think, so beautiful. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. 
Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. I'm just curious about the the scope of your job. You know, you've talked about assigning portrait commissions. You've talked about selecting photos or assigning photos for fiction pieces. What else does your job entail? My job entails a lot of different things. I mean, for the most part, the the main part of my job is definitely assigning the stories for the print magazine, along with, I mean, we're a team, you know, and I've got wonderful colleagues. Um, we have print editors and we have uh, editors who work more closely with the website. These days, it's not really so binary, you know, print and web, it's all, it's all morphing a little bit more into one. Um, the, the idea is to, to make the web and print so cohesive, you know. So in terms of what I do, week in, week out, uh, assigning stories, assigning, I often, art, you know, I'm, I assign stories, I art direct the fiction, curate on photography for newyorker.com and, um, you know, meet with gallerists, curators, researchers, critics, talk, you know, I want to hear about what they're thinking and seeing out in the world because that can often come back and feed into something at the magazine. I mean, it must be amazing. You work with so many talented, I mean, aside from the photographers, just everyone on staff at The New Yorker, I mean, it really is the creme de la creme. You, it's like you must be, feel so lucky to be able to, to do that. I feel incredibly lucky. I feel incredibly lucky. We work with amazing artists photographers illustrators editors writers radio journalists i mean it and cartoonists of course <laughs> never to be forgotten um <laughs> no it's an absolute privilege it's it's inspiring because everyone is bringing critical thought to the table everyone is bringing a real rigor they're bringing the rigor of their own practice to the communal table at the magazine you know mm -hmm. um I have to say, you know, the November 9th when Trump was elected, we didn't really see it coming, you know, that, that Trump would be elected. And we actually had a lot of stories shaped up for the magazine, assuming a Hillary win. It was a little depressing later on in the week, actually, to go into the recycling room and pluck bits out of the recycling bin that were like Hillary, Hillary art, you know. Um, first female president wins and you know things have been designed I mean things were I, we actually published the the cover a month or two ago that had been destined to run and it was Hillary standing in the Oval Office looking out at the supermoon I don't know if you remember but on that Sunday prior to the election there was a supermoon in any case um, you know we have a we, the magazine closes has a rolling close so it starts closing on a Monday and it closes through to Friday and so a large part of the magazine had already made it into the final, was making it into the final stages of, of the closing schedule. And then we woke up to David Remnick's piece on the website, An American Tragedy, um, and came into the office. David sent out an email to the editorial staff saying, you know, let's meet at 11 a.m. in the conference room to talk about what we're going to do and 
everyone crowded in and it was a it was quite remarkable really because even the writers that don't have desks and offices right there in the office everyone came in I think to just sort of rally and get together and sort of um, take stock of the situation and David was great he just said look we okay we didn't expect this but we have a magazine to make and we have to basically re-edit the magazine in three days with this new future you laid out for us so and and in the in the in the ensuing three days everybody came together to make it work you know nobody panicked nobody stressed out we had amazing writers come through to write for the magazine to write short pieces Maya Angelou wrote something I mean it it was really a remarkable a remarkable few days you know um and we had a new cover then we had the the cover of the brick wall was the was the new cover for that issue that came out then on the following Monday. But um, so in that respect, you know, it's a very everyone's very everyone was very professional. You know, you put your own. Of course, all there was a you know all of the pieces had a a very subjective lean to them. Everything was inflected with a personal opinion for sure. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we still had to make a magazine. And and you know, I've also heard from Elizabeth Biondi, who's the who was the photo director until a few years ago, that it was a similar situation during 9-11. You know, the, the magazine came out and it just had to respond very quickly to to the tragic you know, to the tragic events of 9-11. So there are times, you know, there are easy weeks at the magazine. I I don't know if easy is the right <laughs> word, but there are easier weeks and then there are weeks where it's just everything just feels difficult. You know, there's there are things happening out in the world that we have to respond to very quickly. Just the way you're describing that, just that three-day window. Um, you know, you gave me a, a wonderful tour of the magazine and I was amazed just to see how many people are involved in the whole process. To me, it seems like it's uh, it's like a well-oiled machine. Like everyone knows what they're doing, is doing what they're doing, and when it's time to kind of get down to it, you really just you <laughs> yes. got to make it work. Yeah, but it, yes, yeah. definitely. Um, we have a sizable staff. You know, it, it's not easy to put a magazine on the stands like like the magazine we have. You know, as I pointed out to you when you came to visit the office, you know, we have, for example, a large department of fact checkers, 16, I think. Hmm. You know, it it does require an awful lot of work to make the magazine. And I think, you know, as you you picked up on this earlier, every person is bringing their own skill set. And so what you end up with is a very very smooth running well oiled machine because everyone is good at what they do and put that all together it's you make you make a magazine yeah. so um and there isn't really time you don't you don't choose to work at a weekly magazine and i say weekly i mean we have of course the website which is a beast and so it's really a daily magazine for a lot of people there um you don't choose to go into that type of work unless you can work well under pressure Mm-hmm. And um, there's certainly no fudging of deadlines. You know, once it, the website is one thing, but with the print magazine, you know, we print our magazine down in Kentucky, and once it's down there, it's getting once ink hits paper, there's no turning back. So, right. yeah, you just get used to the pressure. You know, things are changing, and there are last minute changes. You know, David is um, he's very deeply involved in every facet of the magazine, and he will come around and and check on the art several times a week. And sometimes the nature of a story will change 
shape over the course of the week. And the art has to reflect those changes as well. So we are we are we are making last minute alterations to the visuals in the magazine and you just have to get used to that and roll with it. For example, I had commissioned a shoot um, with Andre Serrano, best known for his work called Piss Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and he photographed some of the actors um, who were appearing in an operatic production of Penwell's Exterminating Angel. In any case, you know, I said to Andre, I want really, I want sensual. I want, I want silk being gripped and I want the characters. You know, it's about these, sorry, I suppose I should explain <laughs> that it's about um, a, dinner, a dinner party where people can't leave and all sorts of things take place in this claustrophobic environment. But um, in any case, so I, I said to Andre, you know, like close-ups, you know, tight shots of, of tension, of gripping, of fabric, sensual. And um, he came back with this fantastic edit with lots of beautiful images, but uh, we couldn't print any of them. Um, we couldn't print any of those frames w- that I'd, I'd so badly wanted because we just published Ronan Farrow's piece about Harvey Weinstein. And um. so we could hardly publish that expose, that incredible reporting by Ronan Farrow about Harvey Weinstein in the same issue and open that issue with a picture of a man grabbing a woman's hip or you know i mean it didn't it doesn't that we can't do that that doesn't make any sense it's not even we can't do that because the photography has to has to mirror the editorial sentiment of the magazine and so the the, by very fact of the weinstein piece we had to it just negated 75 percent of that edit we published another wonderful photograph, which was a little tamer. Um, and, and so that's what it means to work as a photo editor at a magazine where the, it's at the, you're, you're in the vortex of journalism, you know, at a place like The New Yorker. And a misconception is that it's my job and the, or the job of a photo editor to put the best photography into the magazine, that that's what I'm doing week in, week out, when in actual fact that's not what I'm doing exactly. Um, what I'm doing is putting the photography that is best for the magazine into the magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to work with the whole magazine. It has to work with the stories. Um, and of course, once it does, then I'm the you know then the idea is obviously to put the best photography in. But at the end of the day, I'm not curating a museum show and I'm not making a photography book. We're making a it's journalism that kind of leads to a question that I, that I was curious about which is, is is there a discussion of the aesthetic in the work that you look to run no there isn't an overarching aesthetic vision for the magazine because it, that would require complete control and we you can't have that at a weekly magazine you know you're going for you're going for great photography you're going for photographs that feel unique and you're obviously trying to individuate yourself from the other magazines such as new york magazine or the new york times magazine or california sunday though of course inevitably there's overlap with photographers but in essence you're trying to look different but um you know certainly there's a lot of work that would never find its way into the magazine i i'm always turning down work that is too polished 
feels too retouched. I mean, I, I consider it too commercial looking. I think it would be fair to say that we like, uh, we, pref- we prefer work that feels a little bit more raw, you know, um, a little less polished. Mm-hmm. And somehow, yeah, surprising somehow, you know, but, but, but the stable of photographers we work with, it's so wide that, and they all work in very different ways for the most part. So, and that's the, that's a beautiful thing actually to, to, so that it's a, the aesthetic isn't this uniform one of the one of the traits I think necessary as a as an editor at a magazine, whether it's photo editor or or you know text editor, let's say, is an ability to work with different types of stories. You can't just be into one thing. You have to be curious or interested in a lot of things. Um, you know, at any one time, I'm working on you know seven nine different stories and totally different different genre, different genres you know fiction factual pieces um and also thematically speaking you know very different story subjects you know so often you know over over coffee in the morning I'll start reading my manuscripts and that will spill over into my subway ride <laughs> into the city mm-hmm. but um you know for example one morning I was reading a piece by Rachel Aviv it was about a child soldier from Sierra Leone called Nelson Cargbo, who was given asylum to live in America. And so this was, you know, a really heart-wrenching piece, quite difficult to read, that I was working on. And I, I read that in the morning. And then I had to quickly read another piece, which was a George Saunders fiction piece, which, as you can imagine, is very different to a Rachel mm-hmm, Aviv. Mm-hmm. And I think also a Donald Antrim story that morning and maybe a profile of an artist by Dana Goodyear. So, you know, I mean, you, it's all over the it's all over the board, really, you know, and it's a, it's a question of being able to like get a handle on each one. And of course, by the time I get to work, it's, I, I have a tendency, and I think my colleagues have noticed this too, that um, I have a tendency to conflate narratives, you know, mm. which I think is inevitable when you're reading so many different types of stories and working on such diverse pieces that uh, yeah, sometimes I have to quickly remind myself, wait, where did this happen? What did, what, you know, was this in Ohio or was it, you know, I'm often conflating these narratives so it can be and I have a I think as I mentioned you have kind of a bad memory so (laughs) I you know you get good at the deep read and then the skim read you know just just before you have the creative ideas meeting so that you can you know you can remember which which one you're actually speaking about and and it's happened to me fortunately I have a good relationship with Deborah Treisman our fiction editor but um to her amusement it's actually happened to me a few times in fiction meetings that I have woven characters into stories from a different piece (laughs) and you know one time I I was working on a story by a South Korean writer called Peony Young and um, I saw it creep up the schedule and I thought oh yeah I remember this story and I think I'd read it a few weeks previously and uh, and the story was about someone's mother-in-law and it had, there was definitely an element of gardening so I thought I'll just swing by Deborah's office and just pitch my idea because I've definitely got a good one <laughs> I told myself and so I went into um I went into her office and I said so Deborah you know I was thinking I was thinking for this story that 
we could photograph somebody sort of grabbing a bunch of forget-me-not flowers, you know, just in, and you see the hand with the soil on it and whatever. I, I can't remember exactly how I was describing this image that I had in mind. Um, and Deborah was <laughs> just sitting there looking at me, smiling, and, and she said, hmm, I don't remember there being any flowers in this story. And as soon as she said that, and she, she swiveled around on her chair and was like, let me just pull up the manuscript. And I was like, oh, God, I've, here I go again. And she pulled up the manuscript and did a word search. Not only were there no flowers in this story, there were no forget-me-not flowers, which is the irony of it, you know, that I, of all the things I chose to... I chose forget-me-nots. Um, <laughs> and, and luckily, there were plants in the story, but it wasn't, really, it wasn't what I remember. It's quite comical. Like, I mean, Deborah's also, I'll be describing a story or a scene, and she'll say, like, huh, the protagonist is actually male. And I'm talking, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as if the protagonist is female. So, but it's, it's fine. It all gets worked out in the end, you know. There's still time to... So plants are your saving grace. Oh, God. <laughs> Forget me not. Well, she still teases me about that to my embarrassment. <laughs> Definitely one of the most exciting, nerve-wracking and high-pressured shoots I've worked on is the profile. Uh, David Remnick wrote a profile on Obama. A few years ago, I think it was 2014 now, we asked our star photographer, Pari Dukovic, if he would make the portrait. And of course he said yes, who wouldn't? It's a total dream assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tough to make a bad picture of Obama. He's very handsome um, and we miss him dearly. <laughs> but um, so the, but of course I've worked on a lot of political shoots in the past. Um, and, and I know that with any, when photographing any politician, you're not going to get more than three, three or so minutes. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really brief. So you have to be incredibly well prepared for a portrait sitting that of that nature, um, and you have to be absolutely ready for last-minute changes in, in the in that itinerary in the schedule of said politicians. So, so it takes a lot of preparation. And in the weeks leading up to that shoot, we you know we we spoke with Pari about you know how to develop this this portrait and actually you know came up with a sort of conceit to we wanted something fairly regal and quite elegant of Obama and Pari wanted to make a picture of him on a backdrop a blue backdrop we hired a studio in New York and you know he tested the lighting and things like this and really kind of went through the rhythm of how the shoot would take place because it really is just five minutes you know and in any case I was working on the shoot for weeks with the staff at the White House and Jay Carney, who was the press secretary at the time. And we traveled down to DC. And the night before, we found out that we the shoot was going to take place in the dip room, the diplomatic room at the White House. And in our hotel, Pari and I were Google imaging the room. And, um, you know, this it's an incredible space there's this wallpaper which lines the whole room and it depicts scenes of pastoral america it's an incredible piece of art that lines the room and it would be something of a travesty to kind of overlook that and just put a seamless in front of it you know and make a portrait so we Pari and i sort of decided well let's let's see what we can do to get a little off the cuff moment you know of the president in situ in this room but of course, everyone back at the magazine uh, was expecting this more formal 
portrait, you know, quite classical, sort of like in in a pen style. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we arrive at the White House, we've set up, and the president walks in, and Pari leads him to a chair and the table and the backdrop that has been set up. And he takes, I don't know how many frames, but in any case, um, a few minutes pass and Obama, you know, t- looks back over his shoulder and says, okay, are we done here? Are we, you know, are we wrapping up? Um, and I'm already getting the nudge, you know, from Jay Carney next to me uh, and other staff saying, okay, you know, we need, we need, we need to wrap up now. And uh, the president stands up and Pari and I look at each other and we both are thinking the same thing. And, you know, to his credit, Pari just said, you know, Mr. President, do you mind just a, just two or three frames uh, j- just right here and, and just like directs uh, President Obama towards the wallpaper and has him stand there and I don't think it was more than three frames. The shoot finishes and we go back to New York and Pari develops his film and sends the frames through to the magazine and we try things and layout and we ended up publishing I think maybe the last frame of the shoot um, of the president against that incredible wallpaper. And something that was actually fortuitous was that the segment um, in front of which he's standing actually depicts the Hudson Valley. So we'd gone to DC uh, to, ma- to make a pr- portrait of the president, but we it's inflected with a bit of New York still, which we thought was a nice touch, obviously, back at the magazine. But um, yeah, so I think that is actually a good example of how a photographer needs to be able to react quickly and creatively to changes in circumstance um, and how one's surroundings can often, you know, be make make their way into into the frame. Mm. But, um, you know, and, and, you know, after weeks of actually preparing for something, it changed overnight, in literally the, in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Was it um, was it one of the more nerve wracking ones that you did? Um, I had, I'd worked with, um, former presidents and presidents of uh, foreign countries in the past, like, um, Ahmadinejad, uh, Gaddafi, Chavez, um, George W. Bush. And so I was used to how it would play out. I, I knew, I knew how, you know, how it was going to feel on the day. Of course, it's always nerve wracking, you know, it's a lot of pressure, but it's also, exciting and exhilarating to be in that environment you know it really is a sort of vortex of power it's a really bizarre thing but of course to be invited to the white house is an absolute privilege um it certainly was during that administration um it was a very incredible thing to see the actual space you know the gardens the room it was yeah it was amazing wow Maybe do you want to say anything about, you know, I'm sure you encounter a lot of young photographers, a lot of photographers who haven't been published. Do you have any advice or? I always say, you know, look, you have to have a reason. You have to have a strong reason as to like, you know, why should I look at your work? Why should I take the time to look through your portfolio? What what do you want to tell me? What story do you want to tell? Um, you should have a critical approach to your work. You should treat it as your work. It's, you know, um, it's not stuff, it's, it's your work. And, and, and I think, um, to that point, you know, if you treat it as anything else, you're disempowering the medium, you know, you have to respect your practice. Hmm. Do you find that a lot of photographers that you meet don't know what that is exactly? 
what the the heart of their work is about? Rarely, it's rarely. A, okay, yeah. I think I think a, a lot of photographers. Um, of course, I think you know photography is also experiential in that you have to go out and do it, and it, that that experience will teach you something about what you love and what you want to do. You know, and that comes with time. You don't you don't just get. You, it's very rare that somebody just knows exactly. I just want to do this. You know, I want to do it in this way. Um, one thing I'm really big on is looking outside of the world of photography when you're looking for inspiration. So go to the Met, get lost in the Met. You know, if you're going to, uh, you know, look at painting. Somebody yesterday actually sent me um, a photograph of Winslow Homer's Summer Night, which is a painting that he made in 1890, I think, in Maine. And it's two women dancing under moonlight. And you don't... The incredible thing about this painting, to me at least, is that it's all about light. You don't see the source of light at all. So these two women are dancing, this sublime scene of crashing waves behind them. And they're illuminated by electric light. So they must be on the porch of a house. And then they're also illuminated. They're backlit by the moonlight. But you don't see the source of either light. And so, I mean, that painting mm-hmm. is about light. So you, you, you know... Very much, and like photography, photography is all about light. So all these other art forms can absolutely speak to what you're doing, you know, inspire you in different ways. Um, Actually, I was just recently reading Beaumont Newhall's The History of Photography, um, which is a book that was published by the Museum of Modern Art. Beaumont Newhall was the first curator of photography at MoMA, right? Yeah, Yeah. he was indeed. Right. Well, he, Nancy, his wife, um, sort of took over when he, he went to fight in the war. But right. um, in any case, I, I love this. I underlined this wonderful passage where he speaks about documentary photography, social photography, and how that was changing, you know, during this period. Um, and he, he writes, documentary is, therefore, an approach that makes use of the artistic faculties to give vivification to fact, to use Walt Whitman's definition of the place of poetry in the modern world. And I absolutely love that expression, vivification to fact. Mm -hmm. I think that is just really expresses, you know, it's that, I mean, and that's a Walt Whitman quote, but to give vivification to fact, I mean, that is what photography is. You know, all, all photography is, it's, it's bringing, it's bringing a new truth to what is to what you see you mm. know um i think that there is no one there is no one truth you know everyone has their own truth everyone makes their own truth you don't take a photograph you make a photograph and this idea of bringing vivification to fact i just think it's t- it's so potent you know especially in the world of photography yeah um and beautiful yeah absolutely do you do you ever get feedback from your readers, from your viewers? Um, that's a great question. Um, I often I often wonder, what is everyone out there thinking? It's very easy <laughs> to, to think that you're just making a magazine for people in New York sometimes, working at the New Yorker. Um, and we, you know, you can well imagine that there are thousands of people who, who just want to, who want to nitpick the magazine, you know, and, and they certainly do. But once in a while we do get feedback specifically on the photography and actually there was a fantastic email that was written to our staff photographer 
a year or so ago um, in response to a photograph that we published of his in the magazine. Um, so I had sent Pari Dukovic to make a portrait of a pianist at the Whitney Museum of Art. And this has only happened to me maybe twice in my career, but this is an older pianist in his 80s. And Pari was already on his way to the, was at the museum, had set up the lights and everything. We had a, you know, a grand piano had been brought in. And this had been planned for like two weeks, I think. And it was going to press that night. We were cutting it really fine, I will say that much. In any case, um, I get a phone call from the Whitney at about 3 p.m. And, you know, they said, oh, the subject has decided he's not coming. He's just not going to come to the shoot. He's too tired or whatever. And, I mean, I... I couldn't believe it. I also was kicking myself because we were, you know, right up against the deadline. So Pari was there at the museum and he was all set up. But we had to make an image for this issue. You know, we had to make, provide art for this story that was going in front of the magazine and going to press that night, coming out on the stands on Monday. And I spoke quickly to the art editor. Well, what else can we shoot? Because we needed an art story to open the, the issue that week. And we remembered that the Cherry Blossom Festival was still happening at the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. So I call Pari, um, you know, and it's a, it's a spot in the magazine where we highlight fun things, exciting things going on uh, around town, uh, events of an arts and cultural lean. So I said to Pari, just get yourself and your Leica over to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens and just shoot the cherry blossoms, just take photos of the trees we just need a photo you know it's going to it's going to press so he gets over there and the light is starting to go down and he made this um beautiful image of a woman looking up at this cherry blossom tree and that's a rather long preamble but the issue came out and it was it was wonderful and we all loved the image at the magazine and a few weeks later a man called Walter in Washington state emailed Pari So I'm just going to read a little bit of this email because it was so touching. So Walter writes from Washington State. I'm an old school photographer. Been shooting since about a week after Lincoln was shot. Since 87, I've been doing mostly stock and a bit of magazine work. Pretty blue collar stuff. Not breaking any new ground here, but I found my way here and there. As I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot more cynical about visuals. The world has turned into one big commodity, and to one degree or another, we've all contributed to that reality. But a few of us, only a few to be sure, have also touched a place where no one else has travelled. I don't see it very often, but when I do, it stops me cold. It turns the cynical old man into a reverential child. Every once in a while I see an image that I've never seen before. This morning I sat down to my usual. Before dawn, I sit with my wife and my two dogs. We sit in the dark in the living room and watch the lights come up through the Douglas fir trees in the front yard. We sit there and look to the east as the sun comes up. We have our Carlos Nakai flute music playing in the background. No one says a word. I had my copy of The New Yorker open on the coffee table, but I couldn't see well enough to know what I was looking at. So I listened to the music and watched the sunrise. Then I glanced down at the magazine. Pari... That shot of the woman with the cherry blossoms is one of the greatest images I've ever seen. Billions of cherry blossoms and billions of cherry blossom images, and you find a way to see it differently than anyone before you. My first audible words of the morning were, 
I don't effing believe what I'm looking at. My wife said, yeah, it's a great sunrise. My dogs turned and said, would you please shut the hell up? There's a cat in the front yard. And then I walked the magazine over to my wife and said, look at this. She sat there staring at it for about five minutes in total silence. Then she said, who shot this? I said, a person of substance. I don't know who you are, Pari, and I have no clue where your mind travels in a single day, but you need to know that no matter how you succeed or fail in your life, you have touched that spot that few get to travel, and you should honor that gift forever. The world has become a commodity, and you have chosen not to buy it. A tip of the hat to you, sir, and thank you for all your help. I wish you all the very best. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? That is so beautiful. It is. It really is. And it was just, I mean, I can't even tell you. It didn't make my day. It made my month and that of all my colleagues. So, you know, it's really, really nice to, to hear from people and, you know, there's Walter and his wife, you know, they're, they're sitting there in Washington state watching the sunrise and looking at the magazine. And so it's, it's, you forget that people very far away are, are looking at the, our work, you know, and it's, it's really wonderful when they take the time to respond to it. For sure. And, you know, I just think that, that, um, the sentiment of that letter really nails the essence of the beauty of photography the beauty and the pleasure of it, like what it's really all about, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the ability for a photo to move someone. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a better, a better way to end this lovely conversation. Thanks so much for having me here. It's a real pleasure. It's a real treat. Oh, Jordan, you know, the pleasure has been all mine. That was my conversation with Siobhan Boniker that we recorded in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music on this episode by Poddington Bear, Michelle Macklem, Damien Lazarus, and The Monks. If you like what we do, take a sec to rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram where we'll keep you up to date. Happy New Year from Montreal and thanks for listening. 